This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. In the upcoming 2024 presidential campaign, one of the pivotal issues taking center stage is international trade. Unlike the past where Clinton administration embraced the North American Free Trade Agreement in 1994, or the Bush administration's welcoming of China into the World Trade Organization in 1991, the policy rhetoric from both parties in this election year appears distinctly unfriendly towards fostering international trade. Framed by concerns that countries like China are devouring our manufacturing base, critics of free trade argue that it has weakened America's production capabilities, leading to a trade deficit that threatens the prosperity of future generations. The proposed solution? An industrial policy wielding taxes and tariffs that proudly puts America first, aiming to revive domestic production and bolster American employment. But if, as the saying goes, making things matters, what is the current state of American production compared to our past and our global peers? Is the U.S. passively embracing free trade policies at the expense of its workers and future prosperity? And would the interventions espoused by America First trade skeptics, well-intentioned as they may be, serve the actual economic interest of America and its workers? My guest today is author and vice president of general economics and trade at the Cato Institute, Scott Linsicum. Mr. Linsicum writes on international and domestic economic issues, including international trade, subsidies and industrial policy, manufacturing global supply chains, and economic dynamism for Cato and the Dispatch. He'll present an overview on U.S. manufacturing, past and present, and the role trade plays in the productivity and wealth of the American worker and consumer. When I return, I'll be joined by author and Cato Institute Vice President Scott Linsicum. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by Cato Institute's Vice President of General Economics and Trade, Scott Linsicum. Welcome to Hubwonk, Scott. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, Scott, I enjoy reading your work at Cato, uh, particularly when it challenges our dominant media narrative, particularly about the uh, U.S. economy and jobs. Um, I framed in our intro that our conversation is going to be about um, the notion of uh, U.S. manufacturing. Um, we're in a presidential uh, year. A lot is going to be said about what we should be doing to preserve American workers, American jobs, American manufacturing. So I want to explore some yep. of the work you've done in this is there. You're an expert. Uh, you, you're looking at the American economy every day. So let's start at the very highest level. Uh, as one who studies this relative now to our past and to our global peers, what does the uh, face of American manufacturing look like right now? Yeah, um, well, it is certainly different from what it was in, say, the 1950s or the 1970s, I mean, heck, even the 1990s, in terms of what the sector looks like and what the jobs there are. Um, but uh, different is not necessarily bad. And I think in, in the case of American manufacturing, uh, the vast majority of what has happened in the sector over the last 30 plus years is good. Um, the, the fact is that if you look at like just top line data, um, the United States is still the second largest manufacturing nation in terms of output or value added on the planet. The only country that makes more stuff than we do 
is China, but they do that with, uh, you know, a billion more people. Um, so that gets into the second really important point about American manufacturing. Um, we are by far the most productive manufacturing workforce uh, in the world. Um, and what that means is that for every worker in manufacturing, um, they produce more stuff than any other worker on the planet. And by by leaps and bounds, more than Germany or South Korea or Taiwan and way more than, than China. So you have a big in a sector and you have a sector that is still quite productive. Now, in recent years, the U.S. manufacturing sector has struggled a bit with productivity. But again, we're when we look at kind of longer-term trends, 30 years or so, um, it is still one that, that shows uh, a lot of strength. Um, <clears throat> the next thing, though, is that when you dig into the numbers, um, you see that the United States manufacturing sector has certainly changed. Um, since, again, the 1980s, 70s, or especially the 50s. Um, we make a lot less of uh, the stuff that, well, quite frankly, a very rich country like the United States should not be making. Uh, T-shirts and furniture, low-value, low-wage uh, products that aren't technologically advanced and the rest. Um on the other hand, we still make a lot and, in fact, increasing quantities of the stuff that you would expect the United States to make, uh, aerospace and satellites and uh, transportation equipment and defense-related goods and the rest. So we're still very much um, a producer nation. We're just making different stuff. And so it's that different stuff, that that churn, that... Um, I think people see with their eyes because they see the closed factory in South Carolina that used to be text, you know, a textile factory, or they see that furniture factory in North Carolina, um, and they think, aha, manufacturing must be dying. Um, they look, they go to their grocery store and they see, you know, some cheap plastic uh, a kitchen tool made in China or Indonesia or wherever. And they go, oh, we don't make anything anymore. Well, no, we still make a ton of stuff. Um, it's just we don't make stuff that's going to be, you know, uh, in at Target uh, for the most part. Um, so, so I, 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 good. I, you've given us a lot to unpack there. Uh, one of the most impressive. I, I'm, I'm referring to a recent piece you wrote for Cato called "On Making Things," in which you uh, produced a, um, a bar graph talking about the relative size of our of our production base. You you note that China's larger um, in production, but of course, with one and a half billion or 1.4 billion people, that's that's yeah. easier overall. But we're as large as the next three countries or four countries combined. Yeah. And that lineup of the next four countries combined rattle off, you know, who that. Well, I'll, I'll mention one of them. Germany uh, um, is on that list. I think, you know, we think our cars are made in Germany, our, our suits and shoes are made in Italy, our watches are made in Switzerland. You know, how is it possible that um, the U.S. is larger than the next four combined? Yeah, it's and so Germany, Japan, South Korea, and I believe India um, is next. You you could almost add Mexico, uh, which is the next one down, but that would slightly exceed total U.S. manufacturing output. Um, so we are again, we're we're huge now. But this I think gets to another uh, error in the manufacturing decline narrative, um, and that is that 
we because the United States economy is so huge, even that tons of output I just mentioned um, is a relatively small share of the total economy, re relatively small part of GDP. Now, manufacturing declinists will see that and go, aha, manufacturing decline. But it, that really doesn't mean much of anything. And for two big reasons. Uh, one is, look, the United States is predominantly a services economy. We've been a services economy for decades and decades. Um, and countries, as they develop, whether it's the United States or Germany or China or wherever, uh, they tend to go through this kind of inverted U pattern where you move from agriculture, you peak in, in manufacturing, and then you start going down in terms of share of the economic output. Totally normal, happens everywhere. Um, and so the fact that U.S. manufacturing is not a huge share of our overall economy really doesn't mean much of anything. Again, we're making tons of stuff. We have uh, thriving sectors and the rest. Um, but the other the other big point that I would mention there is that a lot of those services I just mentioned actually go to support American manufacturing. So more often than not today, manufacturers are incorporating services, whether it's engineering or IT kind of pre-production or post-production in terms of servicing, you know, these connected devices or um, or updating them and the rest. So, so there are a ton of services that we don't count as manufacturing jobs because they're not in the manufacturing facility. They're not in the factory that are actually very much supportive of and related to American manufacturing and global manufacturing. So we ignore all of that too. Well, I also want to acknowledge, I mean, baked into our conversation about the glories of manufacturing job is that they're somehow superior. I mean, they're, right. we're imagining that we're all Uber drivers or hairdressers while someone else is making our cars or something like this. Um, is it true that a manufacturing job is in some way superior to the equivalent support of a, a, a you know, a support of a service job, right? right? Would we be pursuing one over the other? So not to get all lawyerly on you, but it depends, right? Um, certainly there are some manufacturing jobs um, in say semiconductor manufacturing or aerospace where uh, the jobs are very well paid, um, but those jobs are highly technical. This is not, you know, some guy on an assembly line punching a clock like you see in a uh, Bruce Springsteen video from the 80s, right? Uh, these are, are very, what we call gray collar jobs. They require a lot of training, a lot of education, a lot of skill. Um, on the other hand, there are a lot of manufacturing jobs out there, including still in the United States, for example, in food processing. We still make a ton of food um, that are not very well paid. Uh, they pay, you know, 17 bucks an hour, maybe. Um, I The New York Times just the other day had a piece about uh, some, some apparel factories in the Carolinas that were closing due to import competition. And they revealed you know, 30 paragraphs into the story, that the starting pay at these manufacturing facilities in the United States was $11 an hour and that they could top out at $17 an hour. Now, when you look at the actual wage, the kind of hourly wage in a lot of services, and I don't mean just lawyers and IT professionals. I mean, there's a lot of blue collar services and transportation and logistics and warehousing, you know, kind of those Amazon related jobs. Um, 
they pay much more than $11 an hour. Uh, and, you know, Amazon's starting wage is like 17 or 18 bucks an hour just to start. Um, there are a lot of good paying services jobs out there, a lot of blue collar services jobs. Construction is another big area. Um, and so the idea that just manufacturing jobs are good and services jobs are bad really misses all of that nuance. And, and again, that doesn't even get into the fact that a lot of those services jobs are supporting manufacturing in certain ways. Can, can I also, though, then say some of the arguments for the, the value of manufacturing, even if uh, they might pay less, is manufacturing, good manufacturing begets more good manufacturing. Yeah. That is, we have some institutional knowledge that leaves when we export that t-shirt factory from the Carolinas yeah. to China, we learn, we forget to learn how to t learn t build t-shirts and services aside, uh, we need to make things in order to service things. So yeah. we, you know, what's, what do you say to the argument that the foundation of everything is making stuff? Yeah, I mean, I it, there's just not a lot of data to support that, right? I mean, the, you know, once you establish that the United States has a, an industrial base, um, you know, because certainly if there were a situation where the United States had really uh, a very small and declining manufacturing base that could not provide, you know, steel for the military or something like that. You could have a different conversation about that, and that's that's important. But but since we have established that kind of baseline capacity, the rest of it really just isn't supported. I mean, in terms of things like research and development and innovation, um, we we are still home to the most innovative companies in the world, whether it is related to uh, straight up services or whether it is uh, companies that are tied to a manufactured good, like an iPhone, for example. I mean, Apple spends more on R&D every year than a lot of small countries, right? Um, at the same time, um, you have, you still have uh, because you have that kind of baseline industrial capacity, um, you have a lot of uh, that technical skill still there. Um, but, and this is a big but, the problem that I think manufacturing really does have in the United States is simply getting workers and having American workers be interested in going into manufacturing. Um, you know, we hear the the manufacturing decline story is really on the demand side, right? We demand, in other words, we need tariffs, we need subsidies to induce more demand for manufacturing workers. But the reality is, um, manufacturing job openings in the United States are, even after recent declines, way above their historical averages, you know, hundreds of thousands of manufacturing job openings. American manufacturers are constantly complaining about their inability to find workers, even in these kind of higher paying industrial sectors. The Defar Department of Defense, when it writes up its industrial-based strategies, talks about how they, they, that the kind of lack of available or workers and lack of interest among young people in manufacturing is a far bigger problem than that demand side stuff. So we have a supply side issue. Now, there is a solution to that, but it's one that the nationalist side really doesn't want to talk about. And that's immigration, right? Um, you know, there. Uh, if if we did have an expanded uh, ex increase in legal immigration, you could fill some of those 
jobs. You could have more supply, uh, labor supply. You could have more output. Um, but but again, that's that's not um, in the kind of nationalist narrative, right? It's always about oh, um, we're getting killed by imports. We're getting killed by foreign subsidies, and we need tariffs and the rest uh, to induce demand for those workers. But that's just not really in the data. You brought up the topic, and I wanted to get it to it later, but let's jump into it now. I think the old, the sort of the, you called it nationalist, the, I'll call it the China is eating our lunch contingency. Yeah. Um, and the narrative goes like this. We live in this um, uh, free market, libertarian utopia, uh, right. uh, uh, driven by ideologues, perhaps by, by folks like you and me. Yeah, I run, uh, I run Washington. Yeah, that's right. Cor corporate shills. Um, and everybody else has, is much smarter than we are. And what, what they mean is they're either subsidizing or uh, their own domestic production and putting tariffs on our imports. Ergo, all our jobs are going to them uh, and we need to respond in kind. Yeah. Let's break that down. Do we live in a, uh, a free market uh, um, uh, world where we don't yeah. impose? tariffs on yeah. other products or, you know, you, you know where I'm going with this. What, what, what is our sort of trade state now? Yeah, if only. Um, if only we lived in a free market paradise, right? Uh, no, the reality is that the United States is a mixed economy as it always has been we still have a bunch of protectionism on the books, whether it is things like the Jones Act, which requires American ships to you know, bring uh, goods between ports, or steel tariffs. Um, we have hundreds upon hundreds of these things called trade remedy duties on imports of all sorts of products, especially steel products, but all sorts of manufactured goods. We And then we have high baseline tariffs on things like textiles and footwear and sugar quotas and the rest. So there's still a ton of protectionism. We also still have, a, even before the trillions of dollars in subsidies that have been um, uh, approved over the last couple of years, kind of Bidenomics uh, industrial policy, even before that, we had a lot of subsidies for manufacturing. We had a lot of efforts to bring back manufacturing jobs via subsidies and other things. Um, so that's, I think, the, the first big myth um, that we live in some sort of a fundamentalist paradise. Again, it's just a mixed economy. The, you know, kind of things can ebb and flow. Average tariff rates can go down, but there's still a ton of other types of protectionism um, and subsidies baked into the U.S. economy. Um, and certainly I'd, I'd like to see we us get rid of those. Um, but, uh, you know, I, again, I, I don't actually run Washington. Um, but the other, I think, the two other big flaws in that narrative are, are one, um, it totally ignores how globally integrated American manufacturers are. You know, a, and uh, this is not Team America versus Team Japan or Team China or whatever. The reality is that um, about half of everything we import in terms of goods is stuff, uh, capital goods, equipment, raw materials, energy that American manufacturers use to make other stuff. So automobiles, classic example, you import uh, some auto parts or some steel or aluminum or whatever to make an automobile in the United States. Um, second, though, is that those 
importers are also huge exporters. In fact, the biggest importers of that stuff are also our biggest exporters of that stuff. I mean, I know Boeing is going through a rough time right now, but they're kind of the classic example. They do import a good amount of equipment and materials and stuff, but they use that to make planes that they then sell abroad. They're a huge exporter of those products. Um, so that's a, a huge huge myth, this idea that just it's American vertically integrated or whatever. So what that means is that if you put tariffs on products, you're going to hurt American manufacturers. When we put steel tariffs on steel during the Trump era that Biden administration kept, studies show that they actually hurt manufacturing output. It hurt profits, it hurt jobs, because so many American manufacturers use imported steel that suddenly got more expensive, right? Um, and and the steel companies didn't suddenly make up for that loss, right? Um, so it's not that as simple as uh, we'll protect our team and attack their team. It just doesn't work like that. Um, but the other, the other, let me just get to the other big myth quickly, and that is that um, if you actually look at the countries that have embraced more protectionism and embraced more industrial policy, they suffer from a lot of problems too. Um, you know, China is kind of the classic example, this kind of narrative that existed in the 2010s and even into the early pandemic days of China being this unstoppable economic juggernaut that used state capitalism, protectionism, industrial policy to produce this just in incredible manufacturing uh, uh, powerhouse that was going to crush the global economy. Well, now you look at China and you see the economy is struggling uh, via all sorts of resource misallocation in the property sector and the manufacturing sector. Um, the, uh, in fact, the United States economy actually increased its lead in terms of GDP versus China last year. Um, that the Chinese manufacturing sector has achieved some, uh, what I would call, its successes, at least in the near term, something like electric vehicles being the, the common example. But they've suffered a lot of big losses, too. And the studies that actually look at Chinese industrial policy and look at the sector sh shows a lot more problems in those sectors. Lower productivity, corruption, and like I said, resource misallocation, bloated sectors that aren't producing anything of value than, um, than the wins. So, you know, that, that model can sometimes produce a sector that is doing okay, that, that it, again, at least in the short term. Um, but it produces a lot of bigger problems too, problems that uh, the diverse, thriving, dynamic U.S. economy just simply doesn't face. Um, outside of, I should note, some of our most protected and coddled industries. You know, shipbuilding is in terrible shape. It's also one of the most protected sectors in the U.S. economy. Um, and it's really those places that need more exposure to free market competition and the rest um, so that they can get back on the right track. Well, I think the baby, we won't go into this, but the baby food uh, issue uh, during COVID was a classic example of a protected industry that once uh, harmed, you know, by, by not diversifying, we're out of baby food. So, um, right. But, uh, yeah, go yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think I think baby formula also gets to another myth, and that is that we somehow boost our economic security and our economic resiliency by bringing all of our manufacturing back, by protecting these industries. And baby formula was a great example. When a single factory in Michigan went down, 
It collapsed the U.S. market for a year. It was one of the deepest and most prolonged crises of the pandemic. And it was all because we had these massive tariff and non-tariff walls around the economy. And you only had a couple producers here. And it and the whole system was so brittle that it fell apart. Indeed. And I, I have uh, you know lively conversations with my friends who do believe in uh, protectionism. And I say, well, OK, it's easy to understand if we put a tariff on Barbie dolls uh, that if the person who buys the Barbie doll pays the tariff, meaning I I, I don't yeah. understand why it is that tariffs somehow seem to be imposed on a, a foreign product. If you buy that foreign product with the tariff, you pay the t tariff. But Barbie dolls are easy to understand. I pay a higher price for a Barbie doll. But if it's steel, that's input for all kinds of products. So American consumers pay the tariff that's being yeah. imposed. So it's sort of a, a classic um, uh, public choice theory, which is, you know, concentrated benefits, maybe a steel worker somewhere in Pennsylvania, uh, but all of us pay more for everything that yeah and the and the studies that look at this stuff show that we as consumers and by consumers I don't just mean you and me I mean companies that are consuming these products too um we paid about nine hundred thousand dollars for every job even possibly created by those steel tariffs same goes for tires when President Obama put tariffs on tires so, uh, yes, you can save some jobs, you can create some jobs, but the cost of doing so is immense. And I would add that it's not just an economic cost. Of course, that's important. Um, of course, that $900,000 per job is, is, is terrible. But the thing that protectionism and industrial policy also does is uh, create a really bad set of political incentives. Um, the fact is that when you look at government subsidized projects, whether it's at the state level or the federal level, um, even when they fail, they tend to stick around for years, if not decades, because of course, politicians have a vested interest in keeping those projects humming. Um, there's an empty Tesla factory in upstate New York that's just sitting around hanging on, still supported by the state of New York, because again, those politicians really want to see it succeed when in a free market, that thing would have gone away. But you also see increased lobbying. So as you have more protectionism, we saw a really substantial increase in lobbying and lobbying spending on trade-related activities because everybody has to, they either want their own protectionism or they want exclusions from the protectionism. So you get a lot more cronyism and potential for corruption and graft that just simply won't exist in a freer market system. You know, you know look, you're still going to have lobbying, but it's just the kind of extent of it uh, increases when you have more government involvement in, in these areas. And that just leads to more of the bad policy. Um, you have, you know, folks, again, demanding their own tariffs. They say, oh, well, if, if that's national security, then I'm national security. We need all this stuff. Uh, and then you just, we all end up even worse off than just that straight economic cost of that single action. Well, okay. Uh, I think people intuitively understand, uh, you know, industrial policy is effectively, if, if it's not free market, it's the opposite. It's, you know, Less competition means, you know, products are less high quality and more expensive. I think people intuitively understand it. Nevertheless, industrial policy seems to feel good. Let me point to one area that I think it really feels good to people, which is the idea that, sure, you know, cheaper, better products, a, a global um, economy means all boats rise, but not really, because as we say, diffuse benefits, concentrated harm, perhaps. If, if you're the, the worker that gets displaced, then it really matters. You, you don't worry so much about the $900 that was used. It's your job that was saved. Right. 
What about the idea that all this prosperity is winding up concentrated in uh, prosperous areas of the country, like where you are in DC or where right. I am in Boston or Silicon Valley, we're all benefiting from a global market uh, of free trade. And the poor guy in West Virginia is getting the shaft. Uh, yeah. You know, is couldn't we do better? And in a sense, protect those areas that need protecting and, and you know, the laptop class, well, you know, let them face a global competition. What do you say to something right. like that? Yeah, so there's a few, there's a few problems with that argument. Um, the first is that, you know, protected jobs, so pick the policy you hate the most in government, whatever it is. Um, and you can see that the policy, the jobs that do exist really aren't there because of the market. They're there because of the government support. So, you know, if you have, say, ethanol, for example, you know, ethanol has all these problems. Um, yes, there are ethanol jobs related to that, but those jobs really in a freer market uh, would not exist in the first place. Um, but beyond that, um, there are there are other big problems with the argument. Um, the, the second is that um, we all benefit from even those guys in West Virginia you mentioned benefit from the competition and disruption that free markets produce. As I always say, it's kind of the price of admission for a prosperous society. Um, you know, if you were, and it doesn't have to be trade related, you know, it could be two different gas stations on a street corner, right? When you start saying, no, we're only going to have one gas station, we're only going to do this. Well, that that lack of disruption, that lack of competition is bad for everybody. It's bad for uh, not just the laptop class. It's bad for, for everybody in terms of uh, less, not just prosperity, but lower living standards and the rest. Um, you also, at the same time, though, um, you simply mean that you're going to be making uh, people pay more for whatever is protected, right? You know, protectionism raised is prices. That's what it's supposed to do. It's, you know, that's its its whole point. And when you raise prices, well, who hurts the most when you raise food prices or appliance prices or whatever? That's the poor in the middle class, right? Because they have less disposable income to spend on that stuff. But it also means that they have, uh, when you pay more, you can't then use the money you save on other things. And that means that there are other jobs in the community that will never exist, but or they'll be hurt by that kind of additional protectionism, those, those higher prices. Um, and then finally, you know, you actually have to look at the, the data here on what happens when you liberalize sectors. And the, the fact is that, yes, certain mill towns in certain places have been hurt, but far more of them have adjusted and moved on. And they've been better off for doing so. You know, one of my favorite examples is Greenville, South Carolina, which used to be a textile town. Uh, of course, there was a lot of uh, increased trade liberalization in textiles decades ago. And Greenville didn't just say, oh, that's it, we're folding up shop. They've now become a center for multinational manufacturing. There's a big BMW facility there. They are big in services as well. It's voted one of the best places to live in the country now. So they adjusted. And that's where policy really should focus. Policy should be focusing less on preventing that beneficial disruption from happening uh, and more on helping workers adjust to whatever comes along. And there are so many barriers in the U.S. economy, whether it's occupational licensing or uh, 
housing regulations or whatever, that things that make it hard for people to move on, to adjust to whatever comes their way. Um, that's where policy should be focusing, not on, again, preventing uh, disruption from happening, from, you know, like freezing the U.S. economy in amber in 1979. Um, you know, we'd all be much, much worse off if we did that kind of thing. Well, the common theme, we're getting close to the end of our time, but I want to squeeze in a few extra questions if you'll uh, uh, humor me here. Sure. If, if there's a theme from this podcast, we do believe in free markets and the wisdom of free markets. Um, but you know, free markets don't uh, address everything because they're not—they're yeah. not. They're sort of you and I making millions of choices every day. What about those uh, sectors that we really strategically do need? Yeah. We, um, about uh, defense or some, something like this. It's like, well, if the market just decides and we don't really decide we want to make aircraft carriers anymore and then China can make them cheaper or or somebody else can make uh, um, you know jet planes or tanks. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, somebody needs to be steering the ship in the right direction, such that we don't ultimately outsource those things we need for strategic, you know, defense, uh, you know, right. us. What, what do you say to that? Like, wh where, where the market essentially is silent? Yeah, no, I think even hardcore free marketers, Milton Friedman, or whoever, um, admit that there is a legitimate exception for national security, right? To to pro to protectionism and free trade, free markets and stuff that, um, you know, you're not going to see many libertarians like me getting mad that the Department of Defense is subsidizing the construction of tanks or whatever in the United States. But, and this is the big but, um, you have to acknowledge first that uh, the national security exception is routinely abused. Um, that uh, you start with, well, we need to make tanks and fighter jets in America. And the next thing you know, you have senators literally claiming that sugar is a national security issue. That's a senator from Florida. The other day, garlic, imported garlic was a national security issue. Um, and that's so, so you need to keep your kind of skepticism antennae up, right? Because, um, yes, we can have legitimate exceptions to national security, but, or to, to, excuse me, legitimate national security exceptions to protectionism and, and industrial policy. Um, but they should be very narrow, very targeted, and we should be keeping a very close eye on all that stuff. Because the minute you kind of open that Pandora's box, you start looking at more commercial related items, you end up with all these crazy things. I mean, we put tariffs on steel rebar, which is one of the, you know, used in construction. It's one of the lowest grade steel products from close allies like Canada. That is not a, and we did it on national security grounds. I mean, that's nonsense, right? Especially when the Department of Defense wrote the Trump administration and said, we're fine. Uh, we only need about 3% of total U.S. steel production. We are, it is not a huge concern. You know, you can deal with a few related specific products. You can deal with China or specific bad actors, but we don't need these global tariffs. And what do we get? We got the global tariffs, right? So it's prone for abuse. Um, but the other, I think, really, really critical point in all of this is that it ignores that we already have laws on the books that allow for just that type of targeting. Um, you know, the Defense Production Act has been abused in recent years, but the main point of the Defense Production Act is legitimate. It allows the Department of Defense to look at its defense supply chain and say, aha, there's a widget 
that we really need to make laser guided missiles or whatever. And this company is kind of struggling to remain viable. So we're just going to give them subsidies. We're going to give them contracts to ensure that they produce the the widget we need for our for our weapon systems. Totally, totally fine, right? Um, that's not what industrial policy advocates want at all. What they want is broad subsidization of commercial products. Um, they want protection of commercial industries, industries that have very little connection to national defense. I mean, solar panels are not a national defense issue. We have all these tariffs on solar panels and the rest. And, and that's totally, totally ignored. Um, and then finally, they ignore that we have a lot of close, close allies. I mean, the closest treaty allies you can get, Canada, Japan, elsewhere, that are really, really good at making certain things. And that we should be leveraging that capacity, that knowledge as well. And we have, uh, whether broad free trade agreements or defense-related agreements that can do that too. You don't have to make every single thing in the United States if you have, again, these close allies, these secure supplies, the ability to stockpile things as well. Um, you can do all of that. You can do it well. It doesn't require autarky. So we've talked about, again, the last, this is the last question. I'll say, uh, you talked about the exceptions. So I'm going to ask the question I ask most of my guests, king for a day kind of thing. So uh, as a free marketer, you, you, you stipulated there are some exceptions when we realize about national security. But other than that, would would your perfect world that we talked about, we don't live there yet, would it be, you know, on the back of an index card, our, our, our policy is all trade shall be free and you, you, you submit that? Or, or are there ways that deliberate intentional policy might benefit the American economy and the American worker. Right. So, um, I mean, I think, yes, there is a place for unilateral liberalization of U.S. trade barriers on a very wide scale. Um, and that starts with consumer goods. Um, there is zero reason why we should be having 40% tariffs on children's shoes. Uh, there is no reason why we need all those sugar quotas and the rest. So there is a laundry list of stuff that currently has tariffs and trade remedies and other things that should be zeroed out instantly. Um, that also goes for the vast majority of industrial inputs. Again, acknowledging that American manufacturers uh, import these things to make other things. Um, most manufacturing inputs should be uh, completely liberalized. Trade in, in those products should be liberalized too. Um, and then there should be exceptions for defense-related goods or processes for uh, determining where, you know, there are potential security, real defense risks, right? But that's a that goes from a world of where the presumption is in favor of free markets and free trade, and then exceptions are very, very narrow. Um, and that's, of course, not what we, we have in lots of areas. You know, again, I mentioned the Jones Act being a classic example, but there's tons of things like that. Um, and then finally, where we do have laws in place that say um, allow for duties to be imposed when um, there's a uh, a lot of subsidization of, of product abroad. We have a CVD law that does that. But where we have those laws in place that allow for a kind of a safety valve or a check on true free trade, um, you know, we really need to make sure that there are big uh, uh well, that it's that it's narrowly applied and and has 
checks on um, the most kind of egregious cases, what we call public interest tests and other things. Um, you know, right now, U.S. trade law is auto on autopilot. If you uh, ask the government for protection, a uh, 98% chance you're going to get that protection. Uh, and even in the middle of a supply chain crisis or a pandemic or whatever, the government cannot prevent those duties from being imposed. Um, and so we need laws that are better able to, to acknowledge when, you know, exceptions need to be made so that we can allow for the kind of the free flowing of goods. I mean, during the pandemic, we were having a housing crisis and we had tariffs on lumber. Uh, we were having a port crisis and we put tariffs on container, uh, shipping containers. I mean, you can go down the list and, and that's just because protectionist law in the United States is on autopilot and there are no such exceptions for that, for those types of situations. So I'm sure we've uh, poked uh, a lot of people's uh, uh, preconceived notions about trade uh, and they want to learn more. Where can our listeners read more of your work? And you've you opened a, a center. I think you have your own like little uh, AV room over there at Cato. I've seen uh, some presentations there yeah. where like your, your TED Talk uh, uh, stage. Yeah. It's, where can our listeners read more or view more of, of your work over there? Sure. So Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org uh, is the easiest place to find us. We're, we've launched this big project on globalization in the last year. Um, so if you just Google Cato globalization, it would all come up. Uh, we have dozens of essays on everything you could ever uh, imagine, including on manufacturing, but on all sorts of other things that um, are kind of quick and dirty reads on, on these issues. And then, you know, I look, I'll, I'll have to plug, I have a weekly newsletter over at the Dispatch. Um, and you can subscribe there to to to, to get uh, once a week musings from me on all sorts of things as well. Yes, we endorse the dispatch as well. Very, very good, good stuff. And uh, again, ultimately, uh, where our listeners will think we're some shills for corporate America, it's ultimately the American consumer, which we all yeah. are all consumers. Uh, that it benefits from everything we've said. It, you know that that no one can dispute that. So right. I really appreciate you coming on and 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 helping us all better understand the world that we live in. Thank you. My my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas for me or suggestions about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.